This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. A lot of people say to me in the end, are you actually saying that you expect kids not to drink until they're 21? And I am absolutely parenting with a stance of no, not until it is legal for you for my younger son. It's because I learned that he will be less likely to suffer through what I suffered through with substance use disorder. Is it an unpopular stance? Absolutely. I'm all right with being a little bit uncool. I'm kind of used to it by now. (laughs) Welcome to How To. I'm science writer David Epstein. A recent Atlantic cover story highlighted an alarming statistic that alcohol-related deaths in America doubled over the past 20 years. Most of those deaths were middle-aged and elderly people. That means there's a lot of work to do for the adults in the room. But even more frightening, the biggest increase in the alcohol-related death rate, it was among younger people. Now, it's inevitable that young people are going to come across drugs and alcohol, right? But our listener this week is worried that the world of unhealthy substance use is getting way too close for comfort. Hi, my name is Lee, and I am a working mom of two. Um, My oldest daughter, Anne, I adopted when she was 16 years old, and she's 25 now. And then my youngest, Jane, uh, just turned six. Lee's older adopted daughter, Anne, has been struggling with drugs and alcohol, and moreover with mental health issues, for years now. And when my ex and I adopted her, we both work in the mental health field in different capacities. We definitely tried to love her as much as she would let us and teach her about being in a family. Um, But it was definitely a, a challenge for everybody involved. Anne moved out as soon as she turned 18. And since then, she's gotten married. She's become pregnant. But she's also increased her drug use. That leaves Lee trying to keep Anne at arm's length from her younger sister, six-year-old Jane, who naturally looks up to Anne, or as she calls her, sissy. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Anne is very fun and silly and charismatic. Mm -hmm. And since that is really what Jane has seen, you know, she, you know, she thinks the world is sissy. You know, she thinks she's lots of fun to play with and things like that. Um, the last visit that we did have with Anne, I think she was in a depressive cycle and Jane was very upset about it. You know, why doesn't sissy love me anymore? Why isn't she spending time with me? Mm-hmm. She told me she was going to do this with me. Where is she? I mean, that was probably at least a year and a half, if not two years ago. Um, So, I mean, she hasn't seen her in person since then, um, in part because of the pandemic, but also because of the things that have been going on. So is she asking about Sissy a lot? Like, is this a frequent thing? Almost every day, yeah. Uh, Even though she hasn't talked to her in months. Lee knows she needs to talk with little Jane more about her older sister, Anne, especially because there's a real possibility that Anne might show up on their doorstep one day, unannounced, new baby in tow. And she has no idea about the baby. Um, And I know if she knew that there was going to be a niece or nephew, she would get excited about that. And my concern, honestly, at this point is with 
Anne's difficulty keeping herself healthy. I worry about even if she'll even be able to bring this baby to term. And if she does, if she'll be able to parent it or if it may end up eventually being taken from her. Lee's wondering how she can set Jane up to have a healthy relationship, not only with her big sister, but as she gets older, with drugs and alcohol, too. Our family does uh, also have a history of alcoholism. I've had some uh, family members who did have that. I know that I need to start teaching her about these things, you know, because there is that, you know, that genetic um, link there. Also with her sister, obviously there's not a genetic link there, but I guess I'm just really not sure at this point how to start having these conversations with her. I um, I want to make sure that she isn't taken advantage of by Anne. Um, Anne does have a tendency mm-hmm. to use people, and I do worry about that with Jane when she gets older. Um, so I guess I just want to start laying that foundation, and I'm really not sure how to do it. On today's episode, author and teacher Jessica Leahy breaks down the myths surrounding drug and alcohol prevention. Spoiler alert! Just Say No programs totally backfired. We'll look at how to protect our kids from family members who are misusing substances and how to prevent them from picking up the habit themselves. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. We're back with our listener, Lee, mom of six-year-old Jane and her older adopted sister, Anne, who was already drinking and smoking when she first came to live with them at 16. So when we adopted her, there was definitely drinking, smoking, and pot use periodically Mm -hmm. uh, when she was living with us. It wasn't necessarily happening happening terribly frequently, but we did catch Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. here and there. During that time, Anne saw both a counselor and a psychiatrist, but she still struggled. 
I mean, when when she was still with us before she turned 18, we did have to have her um, hospitalized on a few occasions uh, due to meltdowns that were dangerous to herself or to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had to have her arrested a couple of times. Wow. Have you tried to explain to Jane Anne's behavior, especially now she's asking about her every day? Not really. I mean, she doesn't know anything about drug use. She does know that Sissy smokes. um, And we've talked about how that's not healthy and it's bad for your lungs and all of that stuff. She doesn't understand anything about alcoholism because she barely even ever sees alcohol in our house. Our expert this week is Jessica Leahy, author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Leahy drew on her own experience with alcohol and spent years researching how to have these conversations with kids of any age. So before we get into a deep dive about the specific risks to Jane and how we keep Jane safe, I would love to take you through an exercise of thinking about substance use prevention for any kid, like a 100-piece puzzle. And there are lots of pieces that um, need to go in in various parts of the life. And and so, for example, if you're talking about an elementary age kid, of course, you're not going to be talking about, you know, the dangers of crystal methamphetamine. You're talking about like things like why we don't swallow the toothpaste, why we spit it out, things like why we don't eat the Tide Pods, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. The nice thing about approaching prevention this way is that if they do experience substance use disorder during their lifetime, They've heard a lot of these pieces of the puzzle. They're helping our kids get to that 100th piece faster. Is that helpful at all? Absolutely, yeah. So you had mentioned that um, that she looks up to her sister, and I think this is a really important to think, thing to talk about because when we talk to kids who start using drugs and alcohol, a really large number of them talk about their siblings as the first source of their drugs and alcohol. So... When you talk about um, Anne with Jane, I think it might be a good idea for you to start laying the groundwork for the idea that in the language of substance use disorder, she has a brain disorder. Her brain doesn't work like other people's brains work. Yeah. And I I actually think that, you know, kind of talking about, you know, brain disorder and p- different people, their brains working differently. I, I think that Jane will really be able to understand that in part because of my job. Um, I work with children with uh, developmental mm-hmm, disabilities mm-hmm. and Jane has been to my work many times um, and, and been around other kids whose brains work differently and so forth. So I think that that will be pretty easy for her re- to relate to. Right. You know, making it clear that the decisions you're making about keeping them apart, if that's what it comes to, comes down to you being supportive and you want to protect her from, you know, the shouting and the chaos and the Mm -hmm. bad decision making that her sister, that sometimes her sister can be a bad teacher. You can use it that kind of language. Mm -hmm. And the last time um, that I had had that conversation with Anne, she admitted that she was not in a good place right now to be a good role model uh, for Jane. Um, and she's said many times that, you know, how much she loves Jane and she wants to protect her. Um, so during the, that last conversation that we had had when I told her that, I felt it was better to kind of keep them apart for a little while. I don't know that I trust her to stick to mm-hmm. it, but it was good that she acknowledged it. Here's our first rule. Start laying the groundwork as soon as you can, on every side you can. 
If the problem is a relative with addiction and you need them to stay away, appeal to their sense of concern for a younger family member, like Lee did with Anne. And when you talk to the child, don't just shame the family member who has a substance use disorder. Start actually having reasoned conversations about why that person is struggling. We keep talking about Jane as being so young, mm -hmm. but the best mm -hmm. substance use prevention programs start around Jane's age, where I'm assuming she's learning her letters, and you can bring her into a bathroom, um, sit her up on the counter, and you're brushing your teeth, and if there's a prescription bottle on the counter, you could say, can you find the, n the letters of mommy's name on this prescription bottle? And then, why do you think mommy's name is on this prescription bottle? And if you got the same thing that mommy got, the same sickness that mommy got, could you just take medicine out of mommy's bottle? Well, of course not, because it's prescribed for mommy and mommy's body size and mommy's illness and mommy's, you know, it's specific to mm -hmm. me. You know, if you tell kids that drugs and alcohol are just bad, um, they know we're hedging or lying because people wouldn't do drugs and alcohol if they were all bad. So having these conversations about maybe why Anne smokes and what smoking does for Anne, but how dangerous it is for her at the same time um, can help you give a, a more balanced picture as Jane gets older. Part of when we've had those conversations with Jane is that Jane and I, we both have asthma. Mm. Um, so that has also been a part of that conversation that she's aware that um, that we both have asthma and that smoking is really especially harmful because of that too. I hate, you know, asthma sucks, but boy, is it a useful conversation <laughs> starter yes. in, this, in this conversation. <laughs> Here's our second rule. Telling your kids that drugs and alcohol are just all bad, it's not really true. And your kid's not stupid. So that's just going to confuse them. Instead, try explaining why someone might actually use substances, but also be honest about the negative consequences. If you share information in that way with your kid, it'll give them a better awareness of substance use disorder that they can draw on as they get older, but it'll also give you credibility in their eyes, and that'll allow the communication between you and your kid to stay more open. I think talking about why you don't have alcohol in the home or why you don't drink in the home, that's a great conversation to have mm. because you're talking about weighing, you know, sure, to have a, a glass of wine sometimes can make people... Um, feel a little more social or a little, you know, artificially happy. The problem is in our family is that it's just not going to be worth it for me because the risk that I might drink too much alcohol and become dependent on alcohol is just too great in our family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense um, for our situation, I think. Um I very rarely drink, but when it is, it is usually more for those like social types mm -hmm. of situations. Um, cause I, I do have a history of anxiety and depression and, you know, parties and things like that are really difficult. <laughs> um, but I do see a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. in Jane. So I do worry about, you know, the possibility that that could play into things in the future for her. So how does Lee make sure that doesn't turn into a bad habit once Jane's old enough to start going to her own parties? We'll hear how Jess dealt with this in her home growing up as the daughter of an alcoholic. That's after this quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. 
It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We're back with Lee and our expert, Jessica Leahy. After Jess was raised in a house with an alcoholic parent, she promised herself she'd never be like them. I tried very hard for a very long time to stay at the abstinent end of things, and I was very, very careful. And it just, it snuck up on me in my 40s. And by the time I sort of hit my mid-40s, it was really clear that I was in deep trouble. You know, I was teaching full-time, and I was writing full-time, and I was trying to drink full-time, and those things weren't working out very well. So when I say it snuck up on me, I think I just let my defenses down. And, you know, having a glass of wine with dinner turned into having some glasses of wine while I was preparing dinner, and then it became the extra secret bottle of wine, and then it became hiding, and then it became these bizarre stories that I tell in the book about, you know, putting the wine in the freezer and turning it into slushies because I thought I would sort of use it later to make, you know, beef stew, and then I never made beef stew, so I drank wine slushies instead. And I think partially it was development of habit. And then in 2013, It got to the point where she actually blacked out at her own mother's birthday party. I don't remember actually what happened, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but I don't remember what happened. And my dad came up and sat down at the end of the guest bed and said, you know, I know what an alcoholic looks like, and you're an alcoholic. And at that point, I didn't have, there was nothing left in me to argue with. So I've been sober since 2013. Mm -hmm. But the minute I got sober, obviously, my attention started to shift to, well, what about my kids? Because I wanted that to end with this generation. But what we know about the risk for substance use disorder is that 50 to 60% of the risk picture is genetics. And you've mentioned that you have um, the genetics for substance use disorder in your family. And unfortunately, there's no one gene we can point to and say, oh, if we could just flick that one gene out, we can get rid of this. It's not like that. So our goal with kids is to try to help kids get to the place where they don't need a drink in order to feel like they are enough to fill up space in a room and they are enough to feel loved and they are enough to be out in the world and take up space. Part of being proactive is lessening the chance that a kid will turn to drugs and alcohol to cope with social anxiety. Even though Jane's still young, she's already had to deal with some pretty confusing emotions around her sister Anne, plus the sudden loss of a close relative. When Jane was about... I think, yeah, I was four. Um, We were the caregivers for my great aunt. And uh, Jane was actually with me when my great aunt suffered a stroke. And then a few days later, she passed away. Um, So at the time, um, we weren't really sure how she was going to process it. And it kind of started out with, you know, all of a sudden we saw it in her play. You know, the fairies were taking each other to the hospital because they were very sick. Um, and then it escalated into nightmares about my husband and I passing away. Um, I found a, a family grief support group. Um, and so I attended the adult part and she attended the children's part. And it did seem to help. Um, she does still get very, very anxious when um, she sees that I'm upset. Mm -hmm. Um, If she sees me crying, she goes into a panic attack. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, that that's something that we're we're working on. You're doing two things really, really uh, well, being proactive about interventions, um, the grief counseling, the, you know, and part of grief counseling is helping kids um, find the words to describe their emotions because kids need to be able to, as we say, name it to tame it, name the emotions in order to tame the emotions. It wouldn't be outrageous to start thinking about a few like mindfulness practices with her. And I'm assuming that if you've worked with young kids, you know, you've done those little exercises like helping them remember to take a breath and giving them a moment to process and then talking about their feelings once they've had that breath. And as you can see, we're creating a circle where the more she's dealing with the feelings in her body and the feelings in her brain, the less she might need a drink or a puff in order to manage those emotions. Here's our next rule. Name it to tame it. Teach your child to name their feelings, which is a first step in teaching them how to calm themselves down. It sets kids up down the line to understand and respond in a healthy way to how their body's feeling rather than just reflexively turning to a drink or a smoke. That kind of holistic approach to drug and alcohol prevention might seem almost radical when you think back to the classic D.A.R.E. programs that many of us were taught in school. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Just Say No does not work and Scared Straight does not work. And actually, um, you know, D.A.R.E. has changed to give them credit. They did look at what the results of their efficacy studies oh, looked like, which was, unfortunately, David, the kids who went that through the program in that format um, were more likely to pick up mm. drugs and alcohol mm. than less likely. So, and there's a really fine line to walk here. In the book, The Addiction Inoculation, I talk about, I profile a girl named, a woman now named Georgia. And um, Georgia was part, her middle school, School presented her with essentially a scared straight model program where in middle school they had an older gentleman who had been through recovery come and talk to them. And what he said was to Georgia, who was suffering from acute anxiety, and it was horrible, and all she wanted for it was for it to stop. And the guy who came to talk to them talked about the fact that drugs and alcohol can make you not feel things, not feel emotions, not feel anxiety. And for Georgia, the immediate response for her was, oh, bingo, there it is. There's the answer to my problem. And she drank uh, immediately. And by the time she got to high school was a daily drinker because no one was, mm. you know, no one was giving her help for her underlying issues with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, the more you can teach Jane to speak up for herself, to know who she is, the more you can support her in who she is unconditionally. Jess says messaging like this is so important when kids are young because as they get older, they start to look to their peers for a sense of identity. We need to start thinking about something called inoculation messaging. And inoculation messaging is a lot like what we talk about, you know, inoculating against a virus, right? Inoculation against a virus means that we show the body a fake version of the virus or a small piece of the virus or a weakened version of the virus so that if the real thing ever comes along, we will be able to withstand it. And inoculation messaging around all risk behaviors is really similar. So if we think about the ways that 
kids might entreat uh, Jane to use would be things like, oh, come on, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, if we can help her respond to that, give her real skills, refusal skills to deal with those entreaties. For example, let's say she's in eighth grade and someone comes to her and says, come on, have a sip of alcohol. Everybody's doing it. If she knows that that's not true, that the research shows that only 24% of kids um, admit that they've had alcohol by the end of eighth grade, then Jane, at least in her own head, will feel like, oh, no, I have an answer to that. And just knowing that she has an answer to that makes her feel like she has more self-efficacy. And research shows it will make her more likely to use that refusal in real life. I think that's a great idea. Um, I personally, um, in, in my career, am a big data geek. Um, so <laughs> I, I really like the idea of kind of arming my daughter with that. You know, um, that's something that you know, an approach I feel like I use with her already, you know, when she comes to me with a question, okay, let's research it. Let's find out the facts about this. You know, let's look this up. So here's our last rule. Empower your child to believe that they're capable of handling challenges, including peer pressure. And arming your kid with information, it'll give them a sense of confidence. They're being trusted with the power to make their own decisions based on the information they know. But of course, Parents need to have the right information, too. A lot of parents buy into one of two myths. Number one, that if I let kids have um, beer at my house, I can take the keys away and people will be safe. And then I'm keeping my kids safe because kids are going to drink anyway. Um, and the other one that I tend to hear a lot, which is, look, I'm trying to teach my kid to be a moderate drinker. I've got this European myth in my head of the, you know, right, the, the French European, families yeah. or the Italian families who let their kids <laughs> have watered down wine and then their own glass to sip. What we know from the research is this. Parents who give a clear and consistent message of no, not until it is legal, and again, I'm not actually caring so much about the legality, although that's an issue. I'm thinking about brain development. The further along we get in brain development, with each passing day, week, month, year, lowering our child's risk of su developing substance use disorder over their lifetime. If a kid is in eighth grade and starts using drugs and alcohol, they have a lifelong risk of somewhere around 50% of developing substance use disorder. Oh, wow. But if we can get them to just 18, we lower their lifelong risk for substance use disorder down to about 10%, which is what it is in the general population. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like I, I hear from time to time the like, well, this doesn't happen in France because like the kids sort of grow up drinking and so it's not a big deal and it's not sensationalized and... Parents also tend to be very scared about having the conversation in terms of their own use when they were kids. Uh, in our family, what we've done is we've obviously been very clear about my use and how it almost took me down. But around my husband's use, for example, you know, there was a year after college where he was feeling really unmoored and dissatisfied and depressed. And he smoked a lot of pot during that year. And we talk about with our kids, the reason he smoked all that pot was because he felt like he was just not doing what he was supposed to do with his life, but it also led to a catch-22 where smoking all that pot was making him less motivated to change things about his life. And once he did get a grip and figure out what he wanted to do with his life and went back to school, he needed all the short-term memory he could get. And um, marijuana actually acts on receptors that are right in and around the hippocampus, which is where we form memories. Mm. So we talk about it from that very realistic point of view and definitely don't over-romanticize um, 
uh, drug and alcohol use during college, that kind of thing. Um, Normalize the conversation, not the not the use. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. And in Lee's situation, she's really walking a fine line when it comes to explaining Anne's behavior to Jane without normalizing or shaming it. Have you thought about when you're, when or if you're going to talk up to Jane about Anne's baby before, before she, you know, since you don't know if she might kind of just show up? You know, I think if, if and when I do have that conversation with Jane, it's, I think it's going to have to have some realistic parts about, you know, she's going to try and have the baby. And we know that Sissy has trouble taking care of herself. So that might make it harder for the baby to be healthy, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Sissy may end up needing help, you know, if if she can't take care of the baby herself. She knows that the reason that uh, Anne was adopted was because her birth parents were not able to make good adult decisions and they weren't able to take care of her, you know, so Mm -hmm. we've had Mm -hmm. those conversations. Mm -hmm. The more that you can sort of help her understand that she can talk about it freely without having to feel like it's a loaded subject that makes mommy upset or anxious um, will help mm-hmm. sort of her incur- encourage her to help her um, speak about her emotions, speak about her feelings about the relationship. And a lot of really great conversations can come out of that, um, led by Jane, if she's feeling like she's allowed to bring that up. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Thank you. I have to say, everything I'm hearing from you, I'm just, I'm sitting here just smiling. I wish you could see me because all of your responses from how honest you are about risk to um, understanding, um, you know, the manipulation that can occur with someone who's using um, all of that. I'm just so pleased with the clear-eyed way that you're approaching all of this. Thank you. It's It's been quite a learning experience <laughs> parenting both of these girls. Um, but, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can. Thank you to Lee for sharing her story. And thank you to Jess Leahy for all her excellent advice. Be sure to check out her book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. If you or someone you know are struggling with addiction, know that the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a 24-7 national hotline. Call 1-800-662-HELP. And if you found this episode helpful, you should check out How to Kick a Meth Habit about a listener in recovery who's learning how to restart his life and move on from the past. Do you have something you're not sure how to talk to your kids about? We might be able to help. Send us a note at howto@slate.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen, Rosemary Belson, and Margaret Kelly produce the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg is host emeritus. I'm David Epstein. See you next time.